left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. Take your time and build your criteria. How much does communication matter to you? Do you expect a personal phone call once a month with a sponsor? Probably not going to want to invest in a syndication that has 200 investors in it because you're not going to get a phone call. And if you try to get a phone call, you're going to be considered a nuisance. No one wants to feel like it's a mismatch. Most of success in life as an adult and a human being comes down to alignment. Alignment with your spouse, alignment with your team if you're a manager, alignment with your leader if you have a boss. Be reasonable and totally eye-open with your expectations. Since you are here listening to this podcast, there's a good chance you're investing with a group of people. Whether you're investing with family or friends or like-minded people in the left field investors community, group investing is a strategy that can get you into more deals, help you diversify, and go beyond what you can achieve by yourself. Before TribeVest came along, it was difficult to overcome all the hurdles associated with group investing. It was basically a strategy reserved for the wealthy. Not anymore. Now, TribeVest helps your group with everything from incorporation, collaboration, banking, and equity management tools all in a single place, so you can focus on building wealth with the people you know, like, and trust. I'm using TribeVest for all five, now six, of my investor tribes. It's a game changer. Check them out at TribeVest.com. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast, powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. This is Jeremy Roll, and you're listening to the Pass Investing from Left Field podcast. Today, I'm very pleased to have Spencer Hillegas with us. He is the CEO and co-founder of Madison Investing, a real estate syndicator partnering on over $800 million in multifamily and self-storage assets under management. He is both a passive investor and an active syndicator and has a history in the financial technology industry. So we're really pleased to have him with us. Spencer, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Jim, thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a wonderful way to start the day. Great. And so, you know, how we start this out every time is we just kind of want your journey, your financial slash real estate journey. How'd you get to where you are and, and kind of what was the path you took? Yeah, happy to. So uh, these days, I currently run Madison Investing, which is our real estate company. We help folks invest in you know syndications and funds. Very similar space that, that I know that you're familiar, you're, you play in, Jim, but didn't start that way by any means. I live in Silicon Valley, California right now. Cool little island called Alameda. Most people don't know that outside of Cali, so I'll just say it's next to Oakland and San Francisco. I started off in a real estate family many years ago, just to flashback. Uh, I grew up in a real estate household where my dad was a broker. Uh, he was a broker for 30 years, ended up being one of the top five in the country, and he was putting me to work inside of his business at a very young age. I don't think six years old counts as meaningful experience, but you know, I was doing <laughs> go for work as a teenager. Uh, I was doing open houses. It kind of scared me away from real estate, to be honest. Uh, it's not cool in Silicon Valley to tell your friends you work in real estate. So I, I went ran screaming into uh, tech companies. 
And and so after after school, started this crazy journey, uh, which ended up becoming a 13 year career. And never in my life thought I was going to be in like leadership positions. But you know, by 27, I was leading a team of 200 people. And you know, five companies later, I ended up at a fix and flip lender called Lending Home, which really opened my eyes to the investing potential within real estate. You know, we'd been doing the traditional stuff. We'd been doing 401ks and and, and thankful that both my co-founder and who's also my wife, Jennifer Marmoto, she and I had our own unique two separate careers and carving that path and climbing that ladder. But ultimately, once I saw from the other side, like within the guts of a lender and building like a $4 billion loan origination team for fix and flippers, I was like, these folks are doing well. And I was like, how do we figure out how to scale our net worth more effectively because the needle wasn't moving the way I wanted us to, even though we were making good income. And I didn't see an off-ramp, if you want to call it that, because the Silicon Valley lottery of joining an early stage company, getting some equity and having it exit just to absolve you of all your financial sins is, is a real playbook that unfortunately a lot of people are still banking on. And I was for a very long time. And so now I'm just passionate about helping others hopefully get smart about this stuff faster than I did. I wish I had gotten that memo a decade ago. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I understand that. So when you said you uh, you were watching fix and flippers doing well, how did that translate into you getting into real estate yourself and not doing the flip strategy, but doing something completely different than that? What was that transition like? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I was actually brought into that particular company. A mentor of mine nudged me over there. And previously, we were I was not in the lending space. You know, we were in fintech stuff, doing kind of very dry back office payroll accounting stuff, software-wise. So I go to this company, and I'm brought in to manage and grow a loan origination group. Didn't know how to originate loans myself, and but I did have to earn the respect of people doing it, and then grow that team. And ultimately, learning that business made me realize what it means to be active as a real estate investor, because you can't get more active than a flip. You know, and absolutely, I can't swing a hammer, Jim. I mean, I I'm a lost cause when it comes to being handy. I use YouTube to fix stuff around my house, and I'm very comfortable saying that Jennifer's probably better at anything handy than I am. All that to say, I would talk to my teammates and then folks that reported to me, folks that I worked with in that organization, who actually were active flippers, and they were doing this on nights and weekends, and I would literally hear their war stories of they spent you know like a couple peeling off popcorn ceiling from a unit over the course of their Saturday and their Sunday, physically seeing scars, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. some cuts. And this isn't like an anti-flip spiel here, because frankly, it's just a certain strategy that matches a certain need. If someone likes that, if someone is looking for that, you know, I, I always have a hard time getting away from a Kiyosaki principle here, but just to mention it, as a guy who likes predictability and forecasting, I'm a big operations nerd. You know, I was leading operations and sales groups for over a decade. I like predictable things. And I also like things that I can set as close to autopilot as I can once I've got the system dialed in. Flipping is very hands-on to the point where Kiyosaki says like, man, you got the buckets and you got the pipeline. Pipeline being, I wanted more income streams for my family. I don't want a one-time cash dump bucket, you know, figuratively on, on the table. That's also similar to what my dad showcased uh, for me back in the day. So I won't go long form on this, Jim. I just want to call it out though, because it's important and it's very formative for me. When I was growing up in my dad's business, I mean, I also watched, uh, as I got a bit older, I watched this business implode. And I watched it implode because we went through this thing that, you know, it sounds kind of corny, but we went through like a a dark decade, uh, if you will, where my brother, uh, younger brother lost his life to cancer, parents got divorced, my dad's business imploded. And 
that one stream of income for our family went away. That was active income, you know, active income, you know, broker income, flipper income, whatever you want to call it. When that goes away, I was like, oh my gosh, we downsized. And now as a dad of my, of my own kids, as we were joking about before we started recording, dealing with a tantruming four-year-old this morning, um, right? It, it, it matters greatly to me to learn from those observations and those experiences, you know, and, and try to figure out how I can like insulate myself without having to go and constantly worry about, is this project working well? Is that project on place? And try to seek out something that's a little bit more in line with my strengths and, and, and style and strategy. But those are very long-winded answer to your question. No, I, I love it. I, I like the way that you, you know, you want to match your strategy to your needs and what you're, what you're capable of. We, we did a flip also once and it, you know, we made hundreds of dollars over nine months. And that is, that is not what you want to do with a flip. You don't want to make hundreds, you want to make thousands. But the key takeaway for me was, okay, I'm never doing that again because I wasn't good at it. But also, like you said, flipping isn't an income stream. It's, it's a cash dump periodically. And you always have to be going out looking for the next one. You know, left field investors, we talk a lot about having multiple income streams. And every time you invest in a syndication, you have a separate, distinct income stream that can supplement your W-2 or whatever else you're doing, but it really provides you with a lot of safety. So I liked how you talked about that. Now, does this tie in then to, you've talked before about financial offense and financial defense. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, some folks out there may not like platitudes. I'm a big personal development guy, so I, I, I like them when they fit. I think the term financial offense and financial defense was something that we had talked about in our household. As we first started really waking up, I mean, think, call it waking up, call it getting the memo, whatever phrase you want to use, working a full-time career that's demanding, and I'll use a specific example, two companies ago, and I was building teams at one of the quote-unquote unicorn companies, really, really high-growing Silicon Valley tech company. And I had never done the true 80 to 100 hours in office a week grind like so many people hear about and many people glorify. It's not, it's not glorious. It's, it's brutal. And it, it yeah. is hard. And it, there, there's rewards from that, of course, in terms of succeeding and winning. But man, I did not necessarily see my infant son at the time for two weeks during that period of time. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because this is like the life that so many people are actually living over the course of decades. And financial offense and financial defense kind of started to emerge as a conversation in our household around that time because it was like, well, we thought we were playing it. We thought we were playing it aggressively, making great W-2 income from two different sources, two different careers we'd worked so hard over years to get to and not seeing a net worth needle move. So what it means to me specifically is adding income streams exactly very well. I mean, very similar to how I, I explain it with our investors as well, Jim, is like, you got to add more. You got to insulate your household. And so how do we insulate our household from job loss, from me getting hit by a bus? You know, God forbid something bad happens to one of us. And that's financial offense at a basic level. I think also you can get into the topics of like goal setting around a specific timeline. And we said, and we, we set these goals, we actually put a number to it, Jim. It was originally 15 years. When we first set goals around financial freedom, quote unquote, we said, we want to be free in 15 years. And then we chopped it in half and we were like, hey, that 15 years is too long, man. Like, how, how do we compress that timetable? We got down to about seven. And this is years ago now, but that concrete num uh, timeline was short enough to drive urgency, but long enough to not use it as an excuse because I quote unquote, can't pull it off. That's where off offense came in is we got real granular with our goals. We said, we want to be this percentage of our income to be active from something we're doing business-wise and then the rest being passive. That's what financial offense meant to us. It's like really, truly going outside the day job and being an entrepreneur. 
and starting as a side hustle, which ultimately I didn't originally plan this, but becoming a business on top of it. So, you know, on the defense front, that is without going too nerdy on a topic that many find dry, I will say that's about taxes first and foremost, more tax efficient income for sure. But it's also about not a fire movement, dude. Um, I'm in mad respect for people who love that fire movement, but I will say, I, I think that the notion of expanding one's means is is far more a fit for us. And I, but you, you know, you want to be conscious of silly purchases. Let's just say that on the financial defense fence, or defense front rather. Like we don't, we've been driving used cars for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, we we are still in our very first house, despite the fact that you know it's it's got a good age to it and it's a Bay Area price point. But all these things matter on the on the financial defense front as well. So I wanted to call those out without going too long on it. Yeah, no, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And just so uh, our listeners understand, FIRE is the financial independence retire early. Is that th- that movement? And, you know, I, I agree with you. I think what you were saying a little bit is you're thinking of the abundance mentality rather than the scarcity mentality. And, and I also have complete respect for people that do the FIRE. But for me, that's kind of an early stage. It's, it's almost like a Dave Ramsey where you're just trying to get out of debt, save money and all that. But once you get to the point where you have a little bit of freedom and you've taken care of some expense issues and debt issues, maybe then you got to switch to the abundance mindset because you're never going to build wealth for your family by cutting pennies, right? It's, it's making dollars. It's going to make the difference. Uh, so at least that, that's my opinion. I know there, there's other opinions out there. So can you talk about you, you were in fintech, financial technology, right? So how does that experience help you in your current role in what you're doing now with real estate and syndications? You know, I appreciate that question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question, Jim. Man, I'll try to keep this brief, but man, it, it doesn't resonate. I think that the financial tech exposure that I am fortunate enough, feel very blessed to have gone through, brought me from being a person who was deeply uninterested in personal finance to be a person that, that, that thinks it's a key priority missing from our household. And that if I had to say anything else beyond that, it wouldn't be nearly as high on the priority list. Like I used to think of money similar as many people do, which is, you know, you take the extreme negative approach of money is the root of all evil. And it's like, well, okay, maybe in my self-righteous college days and early college days, that might've been something that come out of my mouth. But like now it is a tool. It's a tool. You know, it's money is a tool to be used and how a person chooses to use that is really at their discretion. But at a bare minimum, there is no one on this planet escaping Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I don't want to get too too academic on this for folks if that's new to them, but I'll just say everyone needs food, everyone needs water, everyone needs some form of shelter over time, you know, safety. And so at a bare minimum, I'd say that my exposure to fintech helped be like really over time generate interest in that for me. And the vast majority of that decade, Jim, was spent working or bringing products to market that were software for small businesses. And nothing gives you perspective more on the plight of the entrepreneur, I would say, than hearing their challenges on the financial front. And like, we're talking accounting, we're talking payroll, and that might be dry, super dry for most people, because it is. But working at like Intuit for the first five years, which is the company that makes QuickBooks and TurboTax, et cetera, like it was very eye-opening. And then it continued to be eye-opening because I went to a bunch of competitors of Intuit after that. And, and it, the small business challenges are very real. And so hearing, number one, you know, the meaningfulness and, and, and the, frankly, the fun that can be involved in personal finance when you do it right, but also the real challenges that exist out there because you cannot take for granted any kind of business momentum or financial fortitude that you have built. It could be gone 
immediately. And so you have to be an active participant in that. Those are probably my two takeaways. Yeah, and I like that. The, the, you have to be an active participant, right, in your own finances. I think a lot of people are so scared that about finances or about their debt or about talking about it that they don't really dig deep into it. And and that's what, you know, left field investors, we keep, we all talk about it. It's all about building wealth and it's not just to get rich. It's for time freedom, freedom from the necessity to work a W-2 or make money. It doesn't mean everyone in our group is trying to get rich so they can quit working, right? It's trying to build wealth so you have that option if you want to, or if something happens and you have that dark decade, you are protected, right? Because you have these multiple income streams. So I think that's pretty powerful. So now you are operating syndications as a, as a general partner. And can you explain that a little bit and also talk about being a, a co-GP? Because from what I understand, you're doing deals with other GPs. And we have had some deals come across the desks of some left fielders where there are seven, eight, 10 GPs on a deal or one GP or two GPs. And I'd like to learn a little bit, what does that mean when there's multiple uh, GPs, when there's, when there's co-general partners? And how should investors like me or other left fielders evaluate that situation in their investing decision? How, how should it affect our, our decision to, to invest in a deal? Oh, man. No joke, Jim. These are really fun questions because I feel like so many people don't go to this level of detail on really relevant topics for LPs or limited partners. I love it. Right. Thank you. So I, I think I'll take a step back. I started initially, I'll try to keep this brief. I initially started looking at these syndications because we bought a bunch of rentals and we went through a rental phase like so many people do. <laughs> yeah, we, we bought a local duplex. It's 45 minutes from my house. We still have it. We paid $430,000 for that. That's Bay Area pricing for $200 a month in cash flow. That's wow. brutal. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, we got a loan on it. That's not cash. But I will say that that's something that we look at as a great learning and it appreciates, thankfully. Fast forward to some turnkeys we bought out of, out of state. You know, we went through that whole phase. So coming over to syndications, we got there because the overhead is lower and we are way too busy to field calls, even if it's from a property manager who's taking 10% of our monthly gross and they still need us to intervene. And so that, that, that was our very you know, short experience on rentals that brought us to syndications. And so back to your question, there's a three-part framework that I think I can take zero credit for making at a high level to evaluate any deal, and particularly syndication deals and funds, which is you look at the operator or the team. Number one, you look at the market, number two, and you look at the deal, aka the business plan and everything else. We went even for just our first LP investments, and I'm a big framework guy. That's like one of the key learnings and takeaways I got from my journey within uh, tech is like people way more, way, way more intelligent than I am taught me the power of frameworks. And that framework was the starting point. We took it a click down and underneath that who, that where, and that what, when, why, how, you know, the third bucket, we have sub bullets of up to like 70 different criteria and questions that we look at for these different deals now. And it's ever evolving, of course, but I would say at least 70, 80% of making a great decision about a deal is the who on these syndications. And, and I mean, bare minimum. And so many folks are tempted to look at the, the pure quant, right? They're like, like they want to see the numbers, they want to see the IRRs, they want to see all that stuff. And it's like, well, that's great. It's not hard to put together a spreadsheet that says really whatever you want. Yeah. So what matters is the who. If you, and there's three prevailing structures that LPs just want to be aware of in the market right now. Sorry to interrupt, but LPs are limited partners, just so everyone's on the same page. Those are the people investing in your syndication, correct? Yes. Limited partners, aka 
passive investors, uh, to Jim, to Jim's point. So when you're looking at these deals, you know, a lot of them are going to have like that, that primary core team, that leadership team, also known as the sponsor, aka operator, aka GP. And within those deals, depending on the size, that team may not be able to actually raise the sufficient equity capital or just the investor capital to close on that property. I mean, similar to like a down payment on a single family home, you're still taking out a loan, but you need down payment, you need renovation money because most of these projects include some form of value add, like renovations, et cetera. So that's kind of the why you might see other folks on these deals. Each team, very different in terms of their approach and structure. And so, you know, when when you're an investor and like when we're investing as LPs, we want to get a sense of like, who are the people at the helm? And like, like what have they done? What is the relationship within that team? Frankly, I, I think that like GPs getting along is a very under focused topic. Um, I think that, you know, it's like a marriage. They break up. And so you don't want that breakup to happen five, you know, three years into a five-year hold, <laughs> right? which is not uncommon. But you'll also see teams to your point, Jim, of like maybe one, maybe eight different co-sponsors in one particular model. And the point I was going to make earlier is that without getting too jargony for folks and too nerdy, you'll see a co-sponsorship model where folks that are bringing equity capital, but also doing other things in that GP team. They are known as co-GPs typically. They're bringing equity capital and involved in the the decision-making. So that's one model. Another model would be person goes out and makes their own fund. Very common model. And, you know, it's effective and has its own pros and cons, of course. You make, make your own fund. So if I go make a fund, I want to go bring equity capital or investor capital, bring investors into another manager's deal. I can make a fund. It's called a fund of funds. Third model. And this is actually the model that we brought into our business as of last year. And I'm still probably considered a weirdo by quite a few people because we did this. But I think it's, the way, I think it's where everything's going, frankly, in the market, which is I became a registered agent with FINRA. We also still take co-GP spots and deals while I'm simultaneously a placement agent. That Why? That means that well, frankly, I'm a process guy, I'm an operations guy, and I like being very, very upfront, very black and white in the way things work. So that just means I have to go through quite a few more forms and audits and emails are tracked and all this wonderful stuff, which I'm used to from previously heavily regulated industries and roles. But I don't want to put people to sleep. But th- you know, th- those are the first three kind of structures that come to mind. So if I'm an investor and I'm looking at these teams, I would probably just want to have a conversation with the management group on, on whatever deal I'm looking at and just say, Hey, like, what is the structure of this deal? And, you know, who, who, who's, who's adding what, you know, like who, what, what value are they adding? You know, are they helping with investor capital? Are they helping in terms of involvement on due diligence? Are they helping in asset management? Um, Cause if they're in that deal, you, you want to know that they're legally in bad, in, in bad standing. <laughs> you want to make sure that they are actually out there for the right reasons. And, and, you know, reputation wise, they, they have a strong one. Hey, left fielders. This is Julian McClurkin from Tribe Vest. I recently had the pleasure of sitting down with Jim Pfeiffer for a masterclass. I learned so much from passive investing to real estate syndications to how you can diversify your portfolio with a tribe. I also learned how this form of passive investing was only available to the wealthy until recently. If I learned a lot, you will too. Go to leftfieldinvestors.com and check out the masterclass button at the top or look up Tribe Vest on YouTube. I'll see you there. So once you have that information, I, I guess part of it is I think some investors are worried about asking que- you know specific questions about what's this GB doing and what's that one doing. But you're saying those are the questions that, that we should be asking and we should be asking 
the role? Like what specifically are you doing in this syndication? And you ask that of all of the GPs. So are you having, as a passive investor yourself, if you're investing in a deal with, let's just say four different GPs, are you getting each one of them on the phone or on an email and saying, hey, what are you doing on this deal? Or because usually, you know, we're just talking to probably the investor relations person. So are we just going to rely on them to explain the different roles or how deep do you dig into it? And does that add another layer of difficulty to the passive investor? Because, you know, you're partnering with different people each time. So there's a lot more due diligence than if I just go with a sponsor who is doing the GPL by themselves, right? So can you talk a little bit about how you would evaluate all of that? I know I kind of asked like three questions in one, I think. That's great. <laughs> I love it. I nerd out on this stuff daily like you anyway. So, I mean, this yeah. is fun. It's a killer question because it kind of depends. You know, I I, I, I want to give like the legalese um, generic answer of, it depends, but I will say at a bare minimum, a couple things that if I'm purely a passive investor, I would actually at least make sure that I'm connecting with someone who can speak with authority on behalf of that team would be the simple answer. And, you know, if you're speaking to like a, uh, an up and coming uh, syndicator or, or sponsor who's got this deal, maybe they're on their somewhere between their first and their fifth acquisition, you know, perhaps they've only had one ex- one fully full cycle deal, meaning they bought it, improved it, sold it. As, and we're obviously making an assumption these are like value-add deals. Um, but just to use that as an example, if you're talking to a newer player, there is no reason why you have to uh, talk to only an investor relations person for that team. It, because they should still be involved. They, should, they don't have massive infrastructure yet, typically. And, and it, I think it's a very fair request to be able to connect directly with that team. We even have quite a few folks in our group right now, as just as an example, you know, they want to invest in a team and that team might be actually pretty well established further along than that five, that five acquisition, five property number. But they're, if they're investing in a number, you know, that's significantly higher, not just the, the 50 K minimum on, as you see on most of the deals, if they're doing something North of 300, 500 K plus you, you better believe I'm going to help set up and make sure that they can, we have a guy who flew out to a property just last month to go, he flew his personal plane to, to go meet that GP and tour some properties, you know? So it really just depends. And I think it also uh, starts with just asking, like there's really no harm in asking. Um, so do, this is not the time when you're sitting there with a five digit number of your own capital that you worked so hard to get. This is not the time to worry about being overly courteous. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is the time to say, these are my criteria going in for any review of any deal. And I would just like to make sure I can hear uh, some, some good answers from the folks who are actually running this project on the asset management level and are actually involved on that level. Now, to answer your second question, I think it might've been second or third, Jim, if there's like a really big $80 million property and you know, 80 to $100 million property, that's big by my standards for sure. And you've got a, a deep roster, other folks helping, You know, whether it's fund managers, whether it's co-GPs, whatever. You don't necessarily need to go down the roster and talk to all of them. You probably have a point person. And that point person is either one of the, the co-GPs or it's the sponsor team themselves. As long as you get a, a thorough, you know, good, deep conversation. You're comfortable with your own diligence on them. You've seen, uh, you know, some form of third-party validation. I'm a huge advocate of third-party validation. And, and, and just to, to de- demystify that, that means referrals, you know, like, like or, or reference checks, rather. You know, if you got even one, one good reference check, it's a first-time investment with that team. It shouldn't be hard to find a person that they can point you to who's worked with them before. And if they can't come up with that, you better not do it. So... I don't know if that hit on, hit on all your questions, Jim, but I'll just say you don't necessarily need to talk to the full roster on the $80 million property example if they've got like six to eight people. 
because yeah. that's a lot of time. And frankly, once you get authority authority on at least one of those calls, then you should be good to go. Yeah, and I, th- I think you know you really hit it there. It's okay to ask these questions, and and you, you know I think the way you said it is you don't have to be courteous, which you know obviously you don't mean you don't have to be polite. You mean it's okay to ask these questions when we are investing twenty five, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars in a deal. We need to feel comfortable to ask whatever question we have, and mm-hmm. that's something that you know left field investors we talk a lot about is you need to ask the questions, you need to push because it's a big investment, right? And even you might even go visit. There's nothing wrong with that because you're cutting a check for $50,000. That is a lot of money. So that all makes sense to me. How do you find new sponsors? And again, talking from a passive investor, because you know, in our group, we've started kind of only invest, or I have at least, I'm only investing in sponsors that come recommended to me or referred to me by someone who's already invested. Now, I realize that cuts out a lot of um, syndicators. So I still talk to them and I try to develop a relationship slowly over time. But as far as investing for now, it's going to be someone that's referred to me. So how do you find sponsors? And and as a new syndicator, how do you get over that someone like me who's requiring a referral to you, not a referral from you, if that makes sense? Yeah, totally. And on both sides of that question. So starting with like the investor lens, as an LP, you know, if I'm going out there and I've never done this before ever, like if I'm you know, if I'm deep into index fund investing, I maybe have one rental, whatever your scenario, but you've never done, you never invested in a private placement. You don't hear that term enough, probably in syndication. You're investing in a private placement. That's more of the SEC line there. But I'll just say that is um, a couple places you can go. I would just say first and foremost, I would at least build baseline education. And then I would start going on to, I mean, frankly, I don't think it's a bad recommendation, no joke, to go and go into bigger pockets. As long as you go in with a very critical eye, it's a wonderfully powerful networking tool. 99% of it is, is, is good people doing good things and trying to add value. 1% of it is not the 1% you want to actually take advice from. And you got to you gotta run streaming because they're trying to take your money. And so, um, and, and I'm not trying to be rude or derogatory here. It's just that these are real things that seem to occur. So uh, you can go on those places and just look truly at the commentary and the expertise coming from some of those folks. So it's a very light first pass. You know, it, like if you're just kind of exploring, you're poking around, you're not quite sure if you want to go do this whole category yet. You probably don't want to get on the phone yet, even with people like just start there and even arm yourself by picking up a couple books that might talk about the topics. Um, always happy to go into that later. But I think next level, if you are ready to go talk to some people, literally, I would just go and get some practice, like seeing how those discussions go without having to do this in a rush, like Google, Google, Google syndications. And You'll find a laundry list of people and you'll quickly be able to just get out there and have a few conversations with sponsors who have done a lot of hard work on their SEO content. And most of them, I would say, are going to be somewhat experienced, but at least you can talk to that team, see how that experience goes. What like, like, are they professional? Are they pushy? Are you feeling transactionally treated? Like, are you feeling like a number? All those things. And so I could probably keep on going, but I would say, man, meetups and conferences, they can be helpful. I think particularly conferences are starting to show more and more focus on the passive investor, depending on the one you go to. Most, I would say, are still very heavy on active folks in the business. So if you're a passive investor and you don't care about nerding out as hard as Jim and I probably do, then like you probably don't want to go to like an IMN, <laughs> like real estate conference. You probably don't want to go to some of these industry things because you're going to get bored and pitched all day. I would just start with that page one, page two, Google search, poke around, study up. And then, of course, if you know someone who has invested in them in the past, to, to, to your very accurate point, Jim, which is not always the case, ask them. 
you know, just ask them for the introduction because there's there's a heck of a lot more local people who are off Google and they never will be on Google. And they're the ones doing projects on a local level. And that could be an outstanding partner. But you still got to make sure you take the time and due diligence. But I mean, I, I'm very much open to hearing yours as well, because I, I learn stuff every day about the right way to, to go find those relationships. Yeah. And I think the way it started for me was I, I went to a uh, the real estate guys syndication seminar thinking I wanted to be a syndicator. And after I left, I thought, OK, I know I don't want to be a syndicator, but I want to be a passive investor. And it was really a good opportunity to go meet a bunch of different sponsors. So even going to a seminar or, or a networking event that is full of sponsors, as you said, geeking out, you can still you'll still learn a lot. But more than that, you'll get to have a beer or a meal with someone or several someone's who are actually doing this. And then you can kind of learn a little bit about them. And that, that's, that's a great way to start, I think. Totally. And by the way, like those guys talk about knowing what they're talking about. That's a great example of a strong reputation, right? And, and, and yeah. set of events. So what, to answer your second question, Jim, on the active side, I would just say, in terms of being you know, worth taking the call, worth having that discussion, when if you're an active syndicator and you're trying to figure out like, who are the folks that you, know, that you actually want to work with? Can, can you be considered for partnership and all that? It really just comes down to transparency, trust, and making sure that you're coming, putting your best foot forward. But I wanted to clarify if you were asking about like, if I'm the sponsor and I'm trying to go find partners or if I'm the LP, can you just help me out with the other side of that? Yeah, I, I was more thinking of is if you're the LP, how do you find the sponsors? And I think you, you, you gave us some great ideas on that. But, you know, that's another good question is as the, as the GP, that is interesting to me because we're seeing so many deals now where it isn't just one GP. So my question then is, if you're a GP, are you looking for other GPs to, to partner on a deal? Do you always partner with the same ones or are you kind of going from one to the other? And, and how does all that kind of take place? Man, that's a fun, deep topic. I would say, first and foremost, here's what I've learned about and integrated into our approach because it's pretty nerdy, I would say, and, and, and cautious, which is the right posture to come at this, in my humble opinion. So our approach is basically, uh, we're, we're first and foremost, we're looking for people we want to invest our own money with, because that's also deeply integrated into our family plan. But once we find a relationship, which is every time these days, it's done via introduction to your is very similar, Jim, um, to, to your approach. Yeah. Uh, because when we first started out actively in the business, like any other entrepreneurship endeavor, it's like you go to people and say, please take me seriously. <laughs> yeah. Just like, hey, I know I'm new to this specific slice of industry. Please take me seriously. And we were lucky enough to have folks willing to let us partner with them on their deals and scale over time and, and, and build a very robust track record now. But now sponsors send us deals on a weekly basis, most of which are relatively new sponsors, probably coming out of a coaching program similar to the ones that you referenced earlier, some of which are great coaching programs. But ultimately, the person might not have any experience meaningfully yet. I just tell them, you know what, we'd love to start the conversation with you. And over the course of you know, uh, time, let's just keep getting to know each other because we don't jump into deals with strangers. So that's kind of the most common. It's not a no, <laughs> it's just a not yet. The other layer above that would be if a nice introduction comes through referral, like the most recent one that we started partnering with, for example, this is our process. Two different sources of referral for the same sponsor. One is an investor with us already three times over. The other is an active player in the industry who I've worked with on half a dozen different deals. They both simultaneously, coincidentally recommended this one team. We fly out, meet that team, meaning Jennifer, who's my co-founder and I. We look at five of their assets over the course of a 12-hour one-day trip. We, we like what we see enough. 
based on the competency of that team. We invest some capital of our own. We see how they deploy that capital initially. Ideally, this is going to take over the course of three to six months. So we can see, like, do they know how to send reporting in a transparent and accurate way? <laughs> like, do they communicate by modern 2021 standards? Right. I might offend or break some hearts here. And I really, this is not the intent of the comment, but I will just say this. It's not a good look to, run, to, to have a business rolling with an AOL.com address. And I'm just purely using that as an example. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> since AOL launched and I used it too back in the day, but I'll just say modern communication is evolved. And so these are just a, a fraction of what I would look for for that team before we jump into an active deal with them. Yeah, and I, I love that you said you don't jump into deals with strangers. And I think that should be the same approach as a, as a passive investor. You don't want to just, if syndicator comes and sends you an email or you meet them somehow, you don't want to jump into a deal with a stranger, right? You want to do some vetting. You want to take your time. Because I think we all get caught chasing this shiny object, right? Squirrel, and we're running off after it. Really, what this is, you know, this whole passive investing, it, it's a it's a build wealth slowly thing. It's not a get rich scheme. We keep saying it. So if it takes six months for me to get comfortable with you, then that's how long it's going to take. And if the syndicator or whatever partner that I'm working with, you know, rushes it or says, you know, it's now or never, well, then it's never. There's plenty of good operators out there you don't have to force it. And that's one of the things that we're really working on is to just take our time. Like I'm not going to, I'm trying not to invest in a second deal with a sponsor until my first deal has gone a full year. So as you said, I can test out their communication and all these other things. So I think there's a lot of ways you can protect yourself from yourself because we get pretty excited. We have a bucket of money and we run out and deploy it. And you know we should probably walk out and deploy it slowly. Oh, man, I have so much I want to say about that. You said I'm like four or five amazing points. I'll, I'll just I'm kind of bite on one of them real quick. Absolutely. I think um, go slow to go fast is like a, it's a kind of contrived tech culture phrase that I heard so many times. It's, it's just second nature now. And I, I must take away some of that same lesson from one of the comments you made, Jim, which is like, ultimately, like when we started investing passively ourselves into syndications, we took a lot of time to educate, self-educate before the first one. And we then, I mean, I was, I don't want to sound too, too nerdy here, but like I, I read 24 books in the course of 18 months. You know, I listened to 400 plus podcasts. It was a little bit of borderline obsession or just flat out obsession. Yeah. I went through paid four paid coaching programs and we're not talking about private coaching at the five, six digit number because it was a path that I wanted to run down full bore. And this is even before like we started investing as LPs, you know, as passive investors. And so not everyone should have to do that. That is not the requirement by any means. I'd say most of our investors don't even necessarily digest that many books. I didn't need to read 24 books. That was ridiculous. I, I, I could have done maybe five or six and then still be just as nerded out. But take your time and build your criteria. And it's, it might seem a little bit self-important if you're the, the investor sitting there going like, I'm going to build criteria. What does that mean? All it means is how much does communication matter to you and in what form? You know, If you expect a personal phone call once a month with a sponsor, probably not going to want to invest in a syndication that has 200 investors in it because you're not going to get a phone call. And if you try to get a phone call, you're going to be considered a nuisance unless you invested half of the deal's equity. So I'm just, you know, I want to be honest with people because no one wants to feel like it's a mismatch. Most of success in life as an adult and a human being comes down to alignment, <laughs> like alignment with your spouse, alignment with your team. If you're a manager, alignment with your leader, if you have a boss, alignment with whatever and whoever your relationships are. So re be reasonable and totally eye open with your expectations. And if you go in and you're thinking for, here's another example, just without going too far off on this gym, 
you said slow wealth, and I love slow wealth. I, I think it is the way, and, and I think that um, without sounding like the dude from the Big Lebowski too much here, I'll just say that like it, uh, the the number one mismatch goal setting wise with up and coming or interested LPs or interested passive investors that have never done it is they go and expect flip strategy income and returns from a syndication investment that has a fifty thousand dollar minimum investment, which is better tailored and suited for people who are just further along in life and wealth. Like, don't jump in and be disappointed because the syndication is not going to net you what you would get if you grinded hard to manage a flip. And there's a reason you have a time value of your money and, and, and your time, like, like place a dollar value on your money. So just be realistic, you know, like this category is for people who have some financial footing. And it's, it's, it's not necessarily for folks who are fresh college grads and they're like, wow, that was an awesome podcast. I'm fired up about syndications. Let me go dump the only money I have into this thing. It's not. It's, it's just not the move. So I, sorry for being preachy about it. I just think it's a really miscommunicated uh, point oftentimes on so many different mediums that I've heard. No, that's that's very well said. You know, I get the feeling that we could go on for a couple more hours, but we're in a podcast format, so format. So I do have to uh, to close with my last question. Share with us uh, what, what's a, you said you listen to a bunch of podcasts. So what's a great podcast that you still listen to, uh, preferably real estate business, something related to that. And you can give us a couple if you have more than one. Yeah. You know, I mean, I would say depending on your level, I'll give you kind of like the beginners and then the, the advanced. We'll start with the advanced stuff and then get to the more uh, beginner stuff. Probably the most substantive syndication podcast or real estate podcast I've heard is Old Capital. Still a fan. Um, still a fan of Old Capital. It's a brokerage out of Texas. Those guys have been in the game for a long time. You might want to graduate to that. You jump right into that. You're going to be like, wow, I never want to listen to another syndication podcast again because this is so technical. Yeah. But, we're, but working your way down, if you're looking for like a first time introduction podcast, I mean, they're already listening to yours, Jim. So at least they're not necessarily at the stage where they're like, what is real estate? What are the asset classes? I would imagine. But if they are and they just want to take a step back and analyze overall, you really can't go wrong with the Bigger Pockets podcast. I'm not paid to say that. I, I just think that it's you know it's long form, it's it's fun, it's it's pretty pretty straightforward, simple. In between, I think you've got a very large pool of awesome, high quality uh, podcasts. You know, I mean, one of, one of the first ones I ever listened to, or one of the first ones I got really deep into was Michael Blanc's. I want to give him credit. I thought Michael Blanc's was pretty well constructed and and still is and substantive. But yeah, I don't want to go too long here. <laughs> No, those are three great podcasts. So thank you very much for that. So if listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way they can do that? They can check us out from our website. So it's madisoninvesting.com. There's just a quick form on there. If people want to fill it out and get on a newsletter, they can set up a time and, and uh, just nerd out with me for a few minutes if they like. Otherwise, also on LinkedIn, um, I'm not a big Facebook or Instagram guy, uh, but LinkedIn wise, very much on there and putting my rantings on the internet a few times a week. So feel free to engage there as well. <laughs> We'd be happy to connect. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. This has been a really exciting podcast. And, uh, you know, I know you say we're nerding out, but I, I could have these conversations all day. So thank you very much for being on the podcast and, and we'll do it again soon for sure. Yeah, this was awesome, Jim. Thank you so much. I had a blast. That was a very interesting conversation I had with Spencer. There are a lot of things that I got out of that that were helpful and, and, and just made me think a little bit more. One is, you know, matching your strategy to your needs and your strengths. And that seems obvious, but so many of us don't do it. We've talked a hundred times about shiny object and all that. But what you really need to think about is matching your strategy to what you're good at or what you need. And that's how you set your strategy. 
He also talked about financial offense and financial defense, which I hadn't really heard that before in this context. But financial offense, he's talking about more income streams, and financial defense is, is partially you know, tax efficiency and making sure that you are looking at your expenses, although you're not necessarily you having the scarcity mindset. It's more of an abundance mindset, building up what you have rather than just cutting costs all the time. And then we really got into it a little bit with the general partners, multiple general partners. And, and I liked how he said you need to understand the value each GP is adding. And you can't be afraid to ask the question, even if it feels a little bit invasive, right? Like, what are you doing? How are, how are you part of this group? And how are these other people part of this group? And, and what is everybody's role? It's critical to ask those questions when you have multiple GPs. And even when you don't, and you're just trying to find out information about the leadership team, all of those questions are appropriate. You're going to invest $25,000, with $100,000 with an operator. It's okay to ask the questions, and we need to make sure we do that. And then kind of related to matching your strategy to your needs and strengths is build your own investing criteria and stick to it. So you have to have an idea of what you're going for. Why are you investing? What are you doing? What's your strategy? And then stick to that. Again, every once in a while, you're going to jump out and and chase the shiny object because it's fun. But in general, the real estate that we're investing in that's going to provide wealth for our families, it's not going to be super exciting. It's going to be slow. And if you want to do the exciting, fun stuff, take a percent or 5% of your wealth and invest it in something interesting that, that could go to zero, but invest the, the rest of it in reliable real estate. That's all we have for today. See you next time in the left field. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.